So I'm joined today with Deirdre Carvey. Uh, Deirdre is an ex-Defence Force member. I think you served in the Defence Force for 15 years. Yeah, just um, coming on 15 years. Yeah. Okay. Do you miss the Army now? Or? I do. Um, I miss certain aspects of, the, of my military service. Um, I think all the reasons I decided to join in the first place, um, you know, the, the diversity and experiences, the opportunity to serve overseas, and I should probably say that, yes, the opportunity to serve overseas is probably one of the main drivers for me. Mm. I miss that because when you move out of the military, um, you, I guess, unless you maybe go into like an NGO sector or, um, you know, you join the UN as maybe a civilian, like you don't get those opportunities to travel to some of the most dangerous places in the world. <laughs> and um, that as strange as it might sound um, that was definitely uh, a, a push factor into the military for me doing something different I always knew growing up I just wanted I didn't want like a regular office job I wanted something with excitement I wanted something that was challenging both physically and mentally um, so I think now that I'm out nearly three years yeah. um, probably the overseas aspect is what I miss most um, but the people as well um, I think there's something about you know, you know as well, like there's something about military service um, coming in as like a young recruit or a young cadet and the ties and the bonds that you make and the really hard experiences <laughs> that you have that shape you as an 18 year old and things that you think you'll never be able to get through. Um, and you come out the other side and you just feel like you feel so confident and you look around the, at the people that you've shared those experiences with and you know some of them are going to be like friends for life. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's something really special. I don't think you get that in, in all careers and all jobs or occupations, um, but I think it's something really unique about military service. Um, so yeah, the people in the overseas experiences okay. I think are my two, two things I miss. Yeah, and I suppose... What was the thought process for you, like joining the defense forces? Like, was it like, did you play sports when you were younger, or was it like always on the horizon, or did you have like a fam family member? Yeah, so my dad, my dad served in the oh, okay, military. Um, he was a colonel. He retired, um, you know, at, at regular retirement age. And I was, I was really lucky growing up. Um, yeah. My mom was a primary school teacher. My dad um, was an army officer, and they when I was maybe when I was quite young um, myself and my brothers had an opportunity to travel overseas with my dad um, to Syria and Israel um, and I remember at that time like there's some of my earliest memories I've been surrounded by men at the time mostly yeah. um, who were serving in the military um, and who were just so proud of their service and generally they had like long family histories as well of, of serving yeah. and serving their countries and um, I remember just being really in awe of of them, of, of the work they were doing. There was a huge culture around like fitness, outdoors, um, phys just physical activity in general. Um, and my, my dad and, and my mum like shared that with us. Yeah. Um, so from the Middle East then and moving back home and, and going to school, a lot of my friends, their, their fathers were in the military as well. Um, so I think that that kind of those early formative years and, and that socialization piece um, it was a huge influencer on on my life um, what's yeah. interesting though is like neither of my two brothers had any no interest at all and I would say <laughs> they'll kill me for saying this but like no aptitude either like they weren't oh, okay. I when I was definitely like the more like physically robust I guess okay. now, they'll disagree now but yeah. um, at the time and kind of growing up as children was really interested in, in physical training and fitness team sports individual sports 
and I was really competitive as well okay. um, in in everything I did. And I, I, I think that's that's maybe something we shouldn't shy away at in the military yeah. as well. Like we are kind of competitive people. Um, so when it came to making that decision, at, you know, I was thinking at like 15, 16, what am I going to go into? Yeah. Actually, around that time, um, I started being exposed to to females, women in the defense forces for yeah. the first time um, through uh, colleagues of my dad. And I remember thinking, okay, wow, I've only ever really known military men. Yeah. And here are these women who were you know, going out to work, wearing uniforms, um, holding like a diverse set of appointments within the military, be it in like training or logistics or transport. And I, through meeting them, I just remember going, wow, like this is really exciting. They're talking about like going shooting on the range. Yeah. And then I'm seeing them at weekends and like they look so glamorous and so feminine. And I was like, oh, like this isn't just like a career for, yeah. for men. And I went to an all girls school and a career in the military wasn't pushed out at yeah. all. Like I didn't know anyone, uh, any women really that had joined. Um, it was never mentioned in like career guidance counseling sessions. Um, and I think I, they probably don't realize, but like they definitely influenced me. Yeah. So I knew at the age of, you know, 17 going into leaving cert, what I didn't want yeah. um, in, a, in a career. And I think the army offered me I guess a pathway to the things I knew I did want. Like I wanted, yeah. I wanted, as I said, like a challenge. Um, I wanted um, a job that was kind of physical as well. Yeah. Um, I wanted the opportunity to travel the world. Um, and going in as a cadet, I knew I'd have the opportunity as well at the time to to go to college. Yeah. Um, uh, after I completed my military training, so it seemed like a it seemed like a good career option at the yeah. time. And now, in hindsight, I I think it's a massive decision for like a 16, 17 yeah, year old is. to make. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely the right one. And my parents didn't try and influence me too much. My dad was overseas; he yeah. was um, commanding a, a unit in Liberia at the time. Right. Um, I think he was secretly delighted. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, like, how did he feel about you? <laughs> yeah, he was really, really happy. Yeah, um, okay. I don't think my mom was. I think my mom was actually parked outside of the cadet school for the first like two months, ready <laughs> for the call um, to collect me. Um, because like she knew, like it, it, it's it's tough, a, it's yeah. a tough. Yeah, it is a really, really tough job. And there's um, those training uh, like. Yeah years, those formative years, um, be it going in as a recruit uh, for six months, you know, training yeah. or like the cadetship for uh, my time was 21 months. Um, physically, it was really, really, really demanding. It yeah. was really tough. Mentally, it was really tough. Um, there was a lot of tears shed, yeah. uh, particularly in the first few months till I really f found myself like comfortable in it until I yeah. really figured out like, is, is this, this for me? Yeah. yeah. I mean, am I actually able for it? Um, and I think through those like 21 months, I started to figure out like, yes, I am. I mean, I definitely doubted myself, yeah. but coming out the end of it and getting commissioned and going to my, my first unit, the 5th yeah. Infantry Battalion in Dublin, um, I knew it was, I knew then it was kind it was of the so right choice. Yeah. And I look back and I was really happy with coming through those hard times yeah there's different there's different avenues obviously you can enter through the defense forces and um, the most popular i think is either enlisted or yeah. go in as a cadet in and down the commission route mm -hmm. what did you have to do um during the application uh, stages to become a cadet essentially um so at my time there was like an initial screening and i did i considered both options yeah. about the enlisted route and and going in as a cadet and um, because i think they both offer um 
they both offer kind of unique benefits um, and um, kind of diverse experiences as well within both options. Um, And I decided because I guess at the age I was and I was I really thought of the army as well as like a long term career. And um, I, I wanted to kind of go. Uh, in the early stages like that I guess like manager route yeah. um, which would have would have been the cadets at the time um, and and just see see if I was suited to it so I had it like initial screenings like there was your medical your fitness test yeah. um, they were all fine and then there was um, I think it was two or three interviews um, which were hard it was um, yeah. competency based interviews and I guess at the age of 18 like you're trying to bring forward like all these like limited life experiences but yeah. really showcase why you should be considered as a future leader in the defense forces yeah. um and i was lucky at the time and i think this is for for young people as well that are maybe considering a year a, a career in the military um like no experiences um are you know should be maybe you know um they're undervalued maybe yeah it should yeah. be undervalued like everything from um volunteering to um getting involved in sports um community based projects um just just i guess like helping out putting yourself out there yeah. um and i hope this isn't the case but i know covid like a lot of those initiatives might have paused for for a time you know communities based yeah. programs initiatives volunteering um uh, opportunities um but what i would say is like you know again demonstrating that leadership like you know step forward and step yeah. up and put yourself out there um because it was through those um and showcasing those experiences yeah. i think that ultimately then um i was successful then in in, in getting a place um in that cadet okay. class um and it was competitive at the time. We had quite a large class. There was um, seventy, about seventy-five of us between Seven. Army, Navy, and Air Corps. Okay. Um, so our Army class um, was about fifty, fifty-five people, yeah. uh, twelve of um, whom were uh, women, which was one of the largest uh, cadet classes okay, for females. Okay. So it felt like we had a you know a nice cohort of of yeah. women there as well. Um, and a good mix, I think, in terms of like geographical spread and people with different like, backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was an interesting place to be in for the, the 21 yeah. months. Out of the, do you remember your first day, actually? Yeah, yeah. I do. How was that? Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, absolutely terrifying. You're wearing a suit. Okay. Um, yeah. You're going into this alien environment. Um, I remember... I remember basing everything I knew in the army off my dad as well. My okay. dad never shouted. Yeah. And I remember the first time like being shouted at and been told to like do press ups and it was in that first day or two. Yeah. And I remember thinking, Whoa, my my dad doesn't shout. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is going on here? I thought everyone was like quietly, you know, spoken and yeah. it was all very, you know, um, you know, not not as intense maybe as I thought. Yeah. And um, yeah, very quickly you realized, okay, yes, you were not at home. You were <laughs> no longer relying on your parents. Um, this is all on you. Yeah. Um, and that was hard. I, I did cry. I did definitely cry the first night. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, I just turned 18 and um, you're in the Curra. I wasn't a million miles from home. I grew up in Nace in okay. County Kildare. It's not too bad. Um, Sneak home at the weekends. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did I? <laughs> you <Yes>. definitely did. <laughs> um, but it's... Uh, yeah, it was just completely different to, okay. you know, your normal home comforts. Yeah. And again, I don't think that's something we should shy away from. Like that is the purpose of military training. You're trying to you're trying to I don't want to say break a person, but certainly break a person down. Um yeah. and I now know why. Like 
the challenges we face when we're overseas or in a conflict environment um, or where, where we're in that life or death situation. Yeah. Like you, you have to have built up the skills and experience and okay. knowledge. And most importantly, I think the resilience yeah. to be able to like confidently operate yeah. in that environment and make decisive, you know, make quick decisions, like be decisive um, and and, and showcase, I guess, that that leadership. So yeah. now I understand okay. why training was so difficult. Yeah. Um, but that's what I, I suppose that's what I attribute like a lot yeah. of, um, a lot of what, like the reasons why I am where I am now yeah. is, is down to those, the, that training and those early few months. And okay. And it's <laughs> 21, 20, the cadetship was 21 months At the time, then, yeah. Right? I think it's 15 now. So yeah, a little yeah. bit shorter. Um, uh, a little bit more structured, I yeah. think. I think they're looking at um, at an older age profile in terms of of cadets as well. Yeah. Um, but I think it again for me, the diversity aspect is important. I think like a uh, diversity in terms of age and sex and background and culture and um, is is really important. I think in a cadet class, like yeah. we need to be a reflection of the society that we're serving. Yeah. And while that's really important in terms of uh, at home operations and domestic operations, I think when we're overseas, that becomes even more important. You don't want this kind of one size fits all approach to yeah. uh, protecting people, providing safety and security. Um, so I think continuing to promote diversity in terms of how we how how the defense forces hires people is yeah. really really important okay yeah and then so you're you're done the 21 months um yeah. any highlights then from training like particular standout moments during like the 20 it's a bit phase? of a blur yeah that's <laughs> fair enough um a hard yeah i would describe it yeah. i i don't think i could definitely not at my age now but i don't think i could go back and do it okay. um that's not to say I'm not really, really proud of of, of what was achieved true. during it, but yeah. um, I do remember the physicality aspect was yeah. was quite hard um, and kind of relentless. So, yeah. you know, if anyone is thinking about a career in the military, I, I would say to be realistic, like you have to be quite. And I was like, I was, I, I was quite like outdoorsy I played a lot of team sports um, like I competed at kind of national level in in yeah. like particular sports um, and even then it was it was still quite challenging so uh, like I I do think for someone really to to be put themselves in the best possible situation to not not only thrive I mean but to, to grow I think from that 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 situation to, and to yeah. grow from the experience of joining the military you would want to have like a decent base level of of like physical fitness and okay. at least have an interest I think in yeah. in keeping fit yeah. um it is it is an important aspect that underpins a lot of what what the military is and um what military operations entail yeah it's definitely important like I remember going in I was only 17 when I was in recruit training and like I was like I think I spoke on a bit in another podcast so I was only like 50 kilos and like at dinner time the court was saying you need to get another dinner and tea kind of thing <laughs> yeah. so yeah they try, they do kind of build you up as well exactly kind of break you down but yeah. Uh, yeah physical fitness like is next level yeah definitely um, so you're done now with training yeah. um, you started a class of around 55 mm -hmm. and 12 females yeah. out of the 55 that kind of started how many finished or made it through the whole 21 months um I think our attrition rate it wasn't it wasn't super high. I think yeah. maybe five people may have left okay. in um, the, over the twenty one months for different reasons. They were yeah. different ages as well. Um, so some had, I guess, come in as graduates and they just, yeah. you know, 
they had experienced, I guess, like the real world and the outside world and yeah. some just made the decision for them to, to go a different path. Um, others then maybe through the like the physicality or just yeah. realized it wasn't for them, ended up leaving. But um yeah, I think it wasn't it wasn't too high. Um okay, exactly I think right. there was a good core group that were, you know, I suppose joining for the right reasons. It was the right time in their life and yeah, they they stuck it out. We we stuck it out. Okay. Brilliant. So you're out you're out cadet trainer now. Um, you're down to UL then to go to college because so when yeah. you joined the cadets as a school leaver with a leaving cert then you're sent to college to do a degree sorry. yeah I went and I trained actually recruits in the 5th battalion first okay. so I had a year out of my unit to learn actually how to be um, an officer, officer. Okay. and that was down to the NCOs in Gormanston yeah. and County Meath so I again remember my first uh, day or two landing up in Gormanston to the 5th battalion um, and the CS and the sergeants there you know, seeing that they had some some new blood in the unit and we were incredibly naive and probably like deers in headlights um, walking onto the base and started training, yeah, training recruits. Um, and I think it, was, it wasn't just, for me, it wasn't just about me training recruits. It was about me learning how to train recruits, how to interact, how to operate, I think, in this organization. And all of what I learned was down to the NCOs, both yeah. the the senior NCOs and the junior NCOs in Gormanston at the time. And I really, I really just off like have a huge amount of gratitude um for um for the senior NCOs and, and junior NCOs at the time. And still, I mean there's still people I would keep in touch with and, and see regularly. Um and they what I learned I think from them was that the command that was vested in you by just virtue of your rank, that will only go so far. I think what they really built up with me was um, how, when even no one's looking, like how to demonstrate those leadership attributes that I guess a, a good commander, a good officer in the Irish Defence Forces should have. And that was like doing the right thing, even when no one's looking. Um, showing empathy, yeah. um, always putting troops first, um, always putting um, uh, the people that you've been entrusted with the kind of command and leadership responsibilities, always putting them first. Um, and I've tried as okay. hard as I possibly can to kind of maintain that as a principle. Yeah. And not just during my time in the Defence Forces, but now like subsequent and like now that I've left the DF, it's something I really hold like dear to me. Yeah. Um, and sometimes to my own detriment in that, I will okay. kind of generally try and put put others first. Um, and yeah, it was it was an exciting year before I, I went to college. Um, yeah. Learned a huge amount. I mean, the cadets was great for learning, I guess, the theory yeah. uh, and learning, you know, like the academic side and even building up, I guess, like my physical resilience um, in, in terms of the physical training. But I think in terms of operating and growing and being a leader in yeah. the Defence Forces, I think that that first year and then subsequent years in Gormanston and the 5th Battalion really yeah. are what I think shaped me then um, and things shaped me on on areas that, that I still feel that I, I, I'm still working on. Yeah. Do you think there was more pressure on you like as a, a female officer like surrounded by yeah. majority men in an organisation? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I was, when I joined the 5th Battalion, I was the only female officer at the time. Yeah. Um, we had two female NCOs as well. Okay. Uh, they weren't up in Gormanston. They were um, they were down in McKee, yeah. yeah. And um, I, particularly as, as 
kind of the training officer for recruits. I was very aware as well. It's, you know, the female officers training the recruits. And I think there's additional pressures placed on you. You're not seen as your own, like you yourself as an individual. I've often found as as a female um, (laughs) uh, in the military that, you are just that like you I was a female officer I wasn't an officer okay. um, and I think there was there was definitely like a bit of um, additional expectations placed on you yeah. um, I think if, if you made a mistake it was like amplified and it was a mistake as a female officer nearly that you were shouldering that mistake for all females in the defence forces and you to answer for all females in the defence forces so I I definitely felt that additional responsibility yeah. um, I felt my and I felt I bore more my my mistakes maybe more as a result um, okay. you know while others may like male officers for example might have just you know yeah, they're young, they're a young lieutenant, they're first lieutenant, these things happen. Yeah. Um, I definitely felt additional responsibilities on my shoulder to okay. not mess up and to yeah. to try and um try and ensure maybe people that I'm not some people maybe that that didn't think it was um the infantry particularly was a, a career option for for a woman. Um yeah. I definitely didn't want to feed into maybe some of those harmful stereotypes or feed into that narrative okay. um and try and did everything within my power to to counter that where I could. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely put me under additional pressures. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> Grant. And then she obviously, she's done the degree then in UL then after you're in the fifth Italian and then you're overseas then to the lab. Yeah. Um, soon after I finished college, I did a four year degree course, um, studied law and French yeah. um, in UL and uh, used to come back every summer and you know, like, university holidays as well uh, to the unit which was great so I continued to kind of train recruits during those summers and then I had the opportunity my battalion actually reorganised um, so we had a reorg just at the end of my final year in college and the 5th yeah. battalion and the 2nd battalion amalgamated yeah. Um uh, very sensitive at the time. Yeah. Um, we would have been, I don't want to say enemies, but uh, it was... Frenemies. An, yeah, frenemies. <laughs> um, so we amalgamated and I went overseas as a platoon commander with okay. the 7th Battalion then. Um, honestly, one of the best experiences yeah. um, of my life. Uh, I got to work with a platoon sergeant who's still serving, who really just taught me how to operate overseas Um, was a fantastic leader a fantastic mentor a fantastic guide we had fantastic NCOs as well who again had lots of experience in Lebanon Um, we had a number of quite young people as well in the platoon um, but a really lovely mix of people and um, one of the unique things about serving in Lebanon at the time is that the platoon we got to spend quite a lot of time on our own on an outpost so we weren't just in the main camp Um, and that taught us how to live in very very close proximity (laughs) and close quarters with each other um, and to get into a routine and again to like work on our empathy and like work on our skills and drills um, and really like I guess solidify those those bonds yeah. um, and those ties that we had. As a platoon commander, you're in charge of thirty troops. Yeah, there and was um, thirty three at the time. Yeah. Um, so we had a few um, APC commanders, um, like yeah. our armored personnel carriers, um, um, with us as well. So brought it up to thirty three. Yeah. Um, so like day to day operations, we'd have been doing a lot of patrolling. Like we would have been out in the communities conducting engagements. Um, we would have been. Um, 
uh, working on like the security for like some of the logistic patrols going up to to Beirut Um, and then uh, working really on that outpost in terms of um, geographically keeping a a particular area safe and secure as well and making sure our outpost was you know the day-to-day running of it was kept um, yeah kept going and um, it was busy but a really um, just a really rewarding I think mission yeah yeah Definitely. Obviously, it can be rewarding and challenging as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think it depends on what stage of your life you're at as well. Like at the time, um, I had met my, I was engaged at the time. um, And my husband, my fiance, again, he was, he was serving. So he understood. um, He, I think in the pre, when I deployed overseas, if you went back the previous 24 months, we'd spend about 18 of it apart. Um, Yeah, before our wedding. So he had had a number of overseas deployments. This is my first one. But I didn't have any pressure on me. Like there was no one, you know, what are you doing? Where are you, like, when will you be home? Like there was none of that. And again, it's only now that I guess we're married and like we have a little girl. Um, I now see how difficult it must be if you have like children or if you are caring for maybe relatives. Um, You know, when you're overseas, there's a lot of additional demands. I felt very free to enjoy the experience, learn from the experience overseas because I I was able to fully immerse myself in it. Yeah. Um, but th- that's not the case for everyone and there's significant sacrifice um, from on so many like levels from either the person staying back home or the person staying overseas depending on your family circumstances. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really just, I guess, been brought home to me in recent years since leaving the, the army. Yeah, there's almost like a support network behind the soldier. Like every soldier nearly has like a whole team of support. Completely. Behind them, yeah. Um, And I now know from being on the other side, it is 10 times harder to stay at home. Um, Yeah, my (laughs) before my husband left the Defence Forces, he was in Mali during COVID. So he couldn't um, go home. And I was pregnant at the time for the entire time he was over there. We were in full lockdown at home. And I remember saying, like... It, it's the people at home deserve the medals. Yeah. And, like, and that, that was me without children. I know lots of people that have two, three, four, five children that, you know, have kept everything running at home. Um, when you're overseas, there's a lot that's kind of taken care of. Yeah. Like, you know, you're, it's structured, you're fed. Yeah. Um, you only really have to mind like yourself and like do the work and like make sure you're, you're you know, your troops are, are safe and secure and everything like that. But those day-to-day family commitments that are actually probably the most challenging... Yeah that's all left to one person back home. So um, it's definitely cemented for me that the people that are at home <laughs> deserve the medals coming back. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, uh, different missions are different, but yeah, yeah it's Depends. it's something I'm very conscious of now. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. Um, Grant, so you're home then from overseas, you're home from Lebanon, and then you're out to Canada then with the Peace Support Operation School, is it? Yeah, so I... I decided when I was, it kind of started actually just before the 5th Battalion reorged. I got into this whole area, I say this whole area, um, (laughs) of of gender, gender in the military. And it was actually as a result of me being the only female officer in the um, battalion that nearly the perception would be, ah, something has come up with gender in the military. That's Sandirdra. So I definitely... um, benefited from I think like some of the the bias and stereotyping there was around yeah. of what that meant and I don't think anyone really at the time knew what it meant and I started to um, I went over to Sweden first and yeah. I got myself trained up and qualified as a military gender advisor oh, okay. 
Um, and then with the Irish Defence Forces, started building on that through like human rights courses, CIMIC courses, which yeah. is um, essentially like civil military coordination, civil military cooperation, how we interact with each other in the operational environment. So how the military interacts with civilians, with NGOs, with IOs, with the national security infrastructure. Yeah. And I was like, this is really, really interesting. I I want to do more in this space. And it made, it, it kind of, it took my kind of infantry training to this other level. It became okay. like more detailed, more nuanced. Um, so I had an opportunity then to get like, further qualified over in Canada and over the next few years I ended up going back um, on on kind of three occasions for extended um, periods to be an instructor with the Peace Support Training Centre in, in Canada okay. um, and then I got opportunities to work with the UN and NATO on gender and human security over the next few years and I brought all of that back to the United Nations Training School in uh, the Curra. Okay. And we started running um, like international courses on protection of civilians. Um, we started just building up our, our course profile. Uh, we started to deliver these like more nuanced, I guess, military trainings yeah. uh, to our personnel deploying overseas. And I absolutely loved the UN school. It okay. was it was amazing. Um, it was a whole new world for me and, and really took all those experiences um, and brought it all together. And I really enjoyed being a, an instructor, a lecturer, course facilitator. And I really enjoyed interacting with like so many international militaries, um, but also like our at home here in Ireland, like Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade at the, as it was at the time, now D, DFA, um, NGOs, IOs, um, even like private businesses as well that were kind of interested in, you know, yeah. th- like our our common security picture. Okay. Like it was no longer seen as, you know, security is just the remit of the military. We started to understand that actually we're all parts of like, you know, there's interdependent parts here and yeah. like we need to have a more comprehensive, holistic approach to to the contemporary security environment. And I thought that was that that was amazing. For yeah. me, that was like the the pinnacle of my Defence Forces career. Yeah. You got to then implement it then in the Congo, was it? Yeah, yeah. So um, I fast forward a few years yeah. and um, my last deployment just before I left the, the okay. Defence Forces was to the Congo. And um, the Congo is where I always wanted to serve. I think if I went back to that eight, nine, ten year old. Yeah. Um, it, it was the Congo I kind of saw myself in even at that really? age. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember reading stories of like the Irish Defence Forces there in the 60s and, you know, yeah. Jadaville and everything and going, wow, yeah. like that's what I imagined overseas would be like. So when the opportunity came up um, to deploy, I, I I jumped at it and I was lucky while I was deploying out there as um, a psychological and information operations officer in the headquarters, um, the gender advisor appointment was actually empty at the time. Okay. Uh, the UK were were had a kind of a gap in their their deployments. Um, yeah. So I got to fulfill it and I was the gender advisor to the force commander. Um, and again, it just, it brought in all of those elements for so long yeah. um, that I'd been kind of working on and interested in um, and got to implement then in that overseas environment. And it was amazing. Yeah, what does like a gender advisor do in an overseas operations environment? So um, the military and gender uh, yeah. can be a bit of a, a complicated space, but yeah. for say, for example, in the Congo, like what you're looking at is a better understanding of the operational environment. So yeah. traditionally militaries would have looked at, and like this is actually great for even like 
modern day businesses and yeah. stuff like that. So you would have just looked at the battlefield battlefield in terms of like the enemy forces, friendly forces, yeah. and nearly as if you're operating um, on this planet that only the enemy and friendly forces exist. Okay. What that disregards is how complex the operational environment is, all of the different actors there um, and and the needs of the people, I guess, as well. Yeah. So it's taking a much more population centric view to the operational environment. Okay. And it's it's breaking down the operational environment into like different parts. So um, sex, age and gender is kind of one aspect. Yeah. So it's just understanding the people, their needs, that the security threats affecting men and women are going to be very different. The yeah. security fe- threats affecting um, girls and boys of different ages would be really different as well. Yeah. If you're a young male in like the central region of Mali, who's maybe 11 or 12, like one of your major security threats is maybe being um, recruited as, as a child soldier. Okay. If you're a young girl of the same age, like one of the biggest security threats affecting you is either being trafficked um, uh, for sexual purposes or early forced marriage um, or indeed like sexual exploitation and abuse, um, yeah. conflict-related sexual gender-based violence. Um, so it's understanding that and then building a better, more robust security operation around those specific needs. Yeah. Um, so the Congo, for example, um, the area I was in was known as the rape capital of the world. So sexual gender-based violence was endemic. Yeah. Um, it, it was everywhere and not just against women and girls, but men and boys as well. And... Um, one of the things um, that we were mandated to do as a force was protect civilians. And we were actually mandated to proactively protect civilians. We could use force out there. Okay, yeah. um, so it was quite a unique peacekeeping mission that we got to use. Of- we got to conduct offensive operations. Yeah. Um, and we were essentially war fighting with the brigade known as the Force Intervention Brigade. Um, and a lot of it was off this um, protection of civilians principle that was enshrined in the mandate. Um, so it, for me, it was amazing because yeah. it, it wasn't gender sometimes was seen as maybe gender in the military may be a nice to have. Deirdre, if you've got time, you know, we could maybe build in some of these considerations um, and we can start looking at the environment and start looking at the specific security needs. In the Congo, yeah. it was central to what we were doing. It was like central to the military mission. Okay. So I didn't have to sell it. Yeah. Um, and that 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 for me was just hugely rewarding. It gave a huge amount of scope to to bring in a lot of the learnings um, and a lot of where where different initiatives had failed over the years as well in Afghanistan, in Syria, um, historically in the Congo as well. And yeah. we're trying to learn the lessons of the past as well and really implement them um, and, and, and bring into our current operations. So it was, um, I guess, like a, a smarter way to to conduct our operations yeah. um, and a smarter way to do business, I think, yeah. as well for the UN. And does that then, are, are you then trying to educate the population and like implement change then or implement exactly. like a behavioral? Yeah, uh, so, um, and a lot of a lot of what I was involved in then was just that like influence operations. Yeah. So you're using a combination of like engagement opportunities, um, like strategic comms um, to change behavior. So okay. if you just take sexual gender-based violence, we want to prevent if we can. Yeah. So that's like plan A or preempt. Yeah. Um, if we can't prevent and where we have failed in those, like provide an appropriate response um, and a better response than we've had 
traditionally and historically when it comes to, to rape being used as a weapon of war. So they were the areas I was focused in on, really. It was like the prevention of, of, of rape, the prevention of sexual gender-based violence, then the preemption of it, making sure our forces were equipped with the knowledge where they did, if they did come across this yeah. or if um, an allegation was made um, or we had a mass rape in a village or a town um, and then what response we had to have in place there then as well. So that might have been taking maybe offensive operation around against the perpetrators yeah. um, or it might have been around um, justice seeking and ensuring like report mechanisms were robust, making sure people had an opportunity to access justice yeah. um, and that we were working with the, the government there. It was, don't get me wrong, it was hugely, hugely challenging. There was yeah. a huge amount of gaps there, I think, both with the UN mission, but also on the national side. Mm. Um, I think the Congo um, is one of the most beautiful, most stunning countries I've ever been to. Um, but the challenges are, are are vast. The challenges really are huge. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of, of entities working kind of against each other in the country. Yeah. But for me as a captain going over um, and having having the opportunity to to work at the force headquarters level yeah. um, and to influence these 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 operations, to actually go out and conduct operations myself, um, that is going to be something I'm going to take with me f- and the learnings I'm going to take with me for, for life. Yeah, brilliant. And obviously got the influence, like real change and see it take place mm-hmm. as well. So it's brilliant. So, and now you're an instructor with the UK Ministry of Defence on their... Uh, human trafficking security courses, are Yeah, so um, a few, I suppose some of the areas um, that I've gotten involved in um, and stayed involved in, I guess, yeah. is, is the human security gender side. So I would, uh, I still instruct on the uh, human security advisors course with the UK Defence Academy in Shrivenham. We just had our, our most recent iteration of the course last week. Okay. Um, and I love that. I like staying in touch with, with the, the military um, gender and human security side of things. Yeah. Um, I also work as the, as a gender advisor and um, chair for the World Health Innovation Summit, um, where we're looking to progress the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so I work with uh, Gareth Press, who's the CEO there, um, on on just that, yeah. um, progressing UNSDG uh, 5 on health. Um, and I feed in the kind of, I guess, the gender perspective there. Yeah. Um, and have been working with our National Veterans Organization as well as a board member and gender advisor um, for a few different reasons. One, yeah. I absolutely like love the the scope and the mission of, of, the, of the ONE. Yeah. Um, but also we're looking to, um, I guess, continue to progress like our, our diversity and inclusion strategy as well to message to women that have served in the Irish Defence Forces yeah. and indeed other militaries that find themselves in Ireland that, you know, we recognise your service, we celebrate your service, um, we we want you to become like full and equitable members of our organisation because I think traditionally when women maybe have left, they haven't necessarily joined the veterans organizations. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to change that and we have. I mean, like we've we've had great success over the last few years and it, it's been an incredible team effort. Um, but you know, we still we still have a lot more to do. Um yeah. and the O and E has been, yeah, just hugely fulfilling as well and, and just getting to work with other other veterans and me other other veterans as well has yeah. been has been amazing. So um yeah, I think a lot of what I've learned through the work on the human security and gender side, I've brought it through to my nice civilian career. Um, And not just in like the NGO, IO, like lecturing side, but even into my day-to-day work, it's just having, I guess, looking at things maybe a little bit different, recognizing that diversity and inclusion aren't, you know, 
nice to haves. They're yeah. like essential to haves. Yeah. Um, and we we need to be doing everything as individuals to continue to to progress what we can. Yeah, definitely. And you've got some like real life experience that you can kind of bring and implement. Totally, and that but makes it, a difference. Yeah. And how long are you out of military now? Three years. Three years. Yeah, okay. three years. And it's flown. Yeah. Uh, it really has gone so fast. Um, how my husband's been out about a year, so we're both, you know, pretty socialized yeah. so now. Like, household now. Yeah, <laughs> it, and it's funny, but it, it, you know, in some ways, I didn't think, like he did over 20 years, Jeez. I didn't think it would take us, you know, this long to maybe... Resocialize maybe back yeah. into civilian life, but it, it definitely has um, uh, in a, in a like in a lovely way. Like we're yeah. we're still trying to um, like we still maintain a lot of contact with with our friends and and yeah. and former colleagues, um, and a lot of our, our really close friends would either still serve or have served. Okay. Um, but I think yeah, it's, what's taken maybe a, get, a bit of getting used to is no longer having like a six month break from each other okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is but it, like you know you still go on holidays on your own yeah <laughs> exactly maybe yeah I don't know how we'd uh, how we'd engineer that now but um, it is it is an interesting yeah. yeah kind of dynamic when we had been used to you know one person being overseas every you know year or two yeah. Um, but it's yeah it's it's been great it's um, yeah. just a bit different how did you find the whole transition from like soldier to civilian I remember feeling really guilty yeah um, I knew when I got back from the Congo that I was going to be leaving. And yeah, I, I before I even had found a job, I actually said it to my commanding officer at the time. He was the general officer commanding the Defence Forces Training Centre. Okay. And I was told not to say it to him. I was like, everyone, they were like, Deirdre, don't, the army doesn't need to know. Like, keep it to yourself. And I said, no, like, I, I, I actually want to be honest yeah. that I, I've come back from overseas and something has changed. I, I want to do something different. Um, and I also don't want to commit myself to something I won't be able to follow through. I think that was the biggest thing for me. Okay. So when I came back and I had a kind of a staff officer's appointment in the in the Cura, um, I sat down with the the general general on my first day, and I was like, "Sir, I I've decided I'm going to leave. I don't have a job yet, but." I just want you to know because it probably well hopefully will happen in the next few months yeah. and I want you to know because I I know you're putting my name against you know certain things and there's certain initiatives that you you want to get done and progress I don't know if I'll be here to see them through okay um and when I said that to him it kind of made it a little bit more like it made it's, it real. Yeah, it's happening. Um, it wasn't just something I was like you know threatening or kind of saying to you know my husband or my friends and that actually felt like a little bit of a weight had lifted off my shoulders okay. because I did feel so guilty. Um, yeah. The army isn't a job. It's like a it's like a calling. And when you're yeah. in, you feel part of something bigger. You okay. feel something like there's something greater than just you as an individual. Like you're a definitely yeah. you're a team of people. You're you're an army. Yeah. Um, so I think that was like the first step in trying to reconcile the, that feeling of guilt and then I was like applying for jobs and I was really doubting myself as well because I was reading these job descriptions um, yeah. and I was like, oh my God, I don't have any skills. There's nothing here that I could possibly bring to the private sector. I'm never going to find a job. I, I, 
how yeah. do how do I Did you know what you wanted to do? No. No. Not really and at all. Did you leave then before having a job kind of lined up or did you have a no, job? No, I waited, up? yeah, I waited till I had a job lined okay. up. So what I started to focus in on was less on like the job titles and yeah. more on like that those skills that um it, it said it wanted. So I tried to focus in on some of the skills I thought I had around um like coordination, communication. Yeah. Um I, I didn't feel like I'd because I stu- I don't know if it was because I studied law in in college or I found it hard to package everything I'd done in the okay. army but I actually found it really difficult to try and package what do I do? who am I what do I yeah. do like what role could I possibly go for like I'm I'm not an engineer I'm not a doctor I'm not a like a solicitor what what am I um and that became really hard to figure out so but then when I started focusing in in on the like transferable skills it made it a little bit easier then to navigate, um, okay. just to navigate different opportunities that I saw. Um, so I didn't limit myself to any one sector, any one geographical area. I just looked at the skills and yeah. I was lucky I was successful um, after like my first kind of round of interviews. Okay, but I didn't, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Like I didn't really know what the job was. It was um, in as a... It's milestone, wasn't it? Yeah, with Milestone Technologies. Um, and it was as a strategic business partner. Yeah, and I was like, well, security is like something I I know, I know of. I, I like doing like strategy and yeah. operational planning. Um, I went to UCD and I, I did one of the exec um, courses there on okay. like strategy. So I was like, yeah, I, f- I don't really know what the job is, but it feels like I could at least you know, right. g- yeah, give it a go. And it was in the technology sector and I, it wasn't something I traditionally thought of myself yeah. going into because I don't consider myself techie. If I look at my computer or my phone, like it, it immediately breaks. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't feel like I had an aptitude. But what I didn't realize was the diversity in terms of roles and role profiles within the tech sector, particularly here in Ireland and how lucky we are and like what yeah. a, like what um. I guess a myriad of like just opportunities. Uh, maybe not at this point in time, but certainly three years ago. Yeah. Um. In and very much like the military, that you could go into an organization like that, and there's so many pathways, roles, opportunities. Yeah. Um. So I went into something pretty familiar around okay. like security and and strategy and planning. Yeah. Um. And there's a large um like comms engagement aspect to the yeah. scope to the job, and got to know know tech, the tech sector, and I. I loved it. I was like, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought it would yeah. be. Um, and I tried to just embrace it. And I was the only one out of my team working in Europe. So I had to work a lot um, on US hours. That was a little bit of a change. Okay. Um, I put a huge amount of pressure on myself for like the first few months as well, like as wanting you, to yeah. impress, like wanting to show, yeah. like, you know, you made a good choice, like with the with the army. Um, one thing I, I did realize, and I'm glad because I, I, I do see other people struggle, is that I I didn't feel some people are really married like to their rank um and yeah. when you leave the defense forces it's not your rank anymore I wasn't yeah. captain Carberry I was just Deirdre and yeah. no one cared no what anymore, yeah. yeah what what I did or didn't do and you're really exposed and yeah. you're exposed for me I embraced that like it was okay I'm going to have to bring my personality here um, and I'm going to have to like demonstrate that I have the skills um, and aptitude for this role without yeah. relying or hiding behind either a uniform or um, or a rank. And 
that works for some people, yeah. but it doesn't work for others. Um, I, I have seen plenty of people not comfortable with that, that they were very tied to their rank and and maybe um, mistaking their leadership abilities and their aptitude with that of their rank where no one ever questioned them or no one ever, yeah. um, no one ever said no. Did you find that transition from, let's say, military leader into kind of civilian manager difficult? I don't think so, because no. I don't know if I was like your stereotypical military leader. OK, yeah. So you, you always I, always, kind of thing. I was always me, even when yeah. I was in uniform. Um, and I think that was that was something I, I just I wanted to be like and this maybe sounds a bit silly, but like my authentic self. So I was my authentic self. And my authentic self enough. when I was in the military wasn't for everyone. Like people would have thought, said like, well, you have to be a little bit more military or dear yeah. like maybe don't be so so much of you. Yeah. Um, Way too friendly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. like would have would have got that a little bit, I think, in, in terms of feedback. But th- that has only been a positive, I think, now yeah. that I've I've transitioned over to civilian life and I don't feel like I've changed and I'd still meet like my my military, you know, colleagues and friends and yeah. I haven't changed. I don't think I've changed at all. Changed and so I want to. Yeah, I want to keep that. I, I do think it is important because I I do think your authenticity as a leader is something really, yeah. really important. Like, I don't know if I can curse, but like people like smell yeah. bullshit like yeah. a mile away. And as a military leader. It's really obvious when you're putting on an act or a role or you're embodying who you think you should be. And it's generally is like this cartoonish character of like someone in uniform and like your voice goes deeper and you only bark commands. Yeah. And I just don't think it, I, I don't think it's, it gets you far. It might get you far in the short, short, ter- short term, yeah. but like I think in the long term, like people respond to who you are as a person and how you treat people and... Um, I think your authentic self is what needs to be brought through there. I think like there's a difference, right? So like when you first joined the army, how you're managed is a lot different to like day to day life once you're at that kind of training environment. It's everything. Everyone's like way more friendlier, and it's on like true. You're called by your yeah. your rank and your second line when you're in trouble, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily on like a day to day basis. Like you still have to like, yeah. interact with people. So. But I think what you're saying is actually really important because people, some pe- some people are able to distinguish those environments. And yeah. I do think in the training environment, you have to be that little bit more like abrupt, be yeah. less of your personality. And I can imagine when I was training recruits, I, I, I wasn't like who I am now. Yeah. And I, I had maybe a different uh, persona um, yeah. when you're out publicly in front, um, in front of a, a group of people. But I think then it's, it's knowing how to, differentiate those environments yeah. and kind of adapting and some some can and some can't um, and I think then when you come out particularly to the tech sector it's a very like flat yeah. like flat structure and that can be a little bit um, jarring I think for some people as well particularly I suppose it's not too bad for me as a captain it wasn't that yeah. I had you know um, uh, any kind of like high rank in the defence forces but I'm sure if you're coming out and you did hold a particular rank and you had you know maybe staff officers and you had people doing a lot of things for you I, I'm sure that can that can be a bit jarring as yeah. well and um, you know it, it, when it's just you um, and you have to engage at all levels yeah. you know some people thrive in that environment and then Maybe others, you know, are, it's not going to be as as comfortable for them to, yeah. to thrive. So you're in Google now at the moment. Yes. As the DNI manager, is it? So I'm in trust and safety. Trust yeah, and safety. trust and safety okay. manager for EMEA. And how's that going? Love it. Yeah. yeah. Again, like an incredible, uh, incredible team, incredible organization. Um, 
impactful work. It yeah. it is aligned with my my principles and values. Um, and again, all of those, you know, we talk about real world experiences and real life experiences. Like I've taken everything over the last what nearly eighteen. 19 years of my like professional career and like continue to learn every day don't get me wrong but yeah. I'm bringing all those experiences through um, I don't believe if it wasn't for the the defence forces like I don't believe I you know I would be where I am or yeah. I don't believe I would be you know being able to make the impact and kind of working in the role that I'm working on yeah. um, it's probably like the perfect job for you now like with it brings all together everything yeah it's um like people management side um policy side yeah. um working on like the crisis management side um yeah. so it really is it brings together all of those um so I look back then at all of those experiences from overseas to you know Canada and lecturing and yeah. gender and human security um I'm working like just working in different staff roles and realizing, okay, all of those were were building to something. Yeah. Um, like I think this role role will, you know, continue to to enhance like skills and yeah. you know give me new experiences as well. Yeah, brilliant. And the defense forces then as a whole, um, would you recommend it as a career option? Definitely. Personally? Um, I do think, particularly for like a young person in Ireland today. Yeah. Um, and this might be a bit controversial, but I do actually believe that military experience is good for everyone um and okay. i i'd love i'd love for more people to get like get a a taste of it i guess yeah, yeah um the way maybe some other countries do um you know if you take like finland or switzerland for example yeah. um I, I i don't think it's going to happen in ireland but yeah. i i could see some benefits um i think of myself as an 18 year old and just i guess in hindsight like how little i knew about the world or um just I guess not knowing just how far you can kind of push yourself as an individual. Yeah. Like the military takes you out of your comfort zone in what should be a, a very supportive, um, well-managed environment. And if it's not, well then, you know, and I, I do think there has been cases in the in the recent past that have yeah. shone um, a less um, a less than adequate light on the defense forces. But if if you can, you know, get that supportive structured environment um and go through your military socialization in that environment yeah. um i do think it's i do think it's like incredible skills for for any young person to have and bring through their their career um and i say that coming out of the back of like a pandemic where the world kind of was turned upside down for people yeah. i did see i i guess across ireland and in a across a number of, of sectors and organizations um People have really struggled. And I think yeah. one of the things, certainly me and my uh, like ex-Defence Forces uh, pals and, you know, army veterans have seen is like we find ourselves very adaptable. Yeah. We find ourselves in a really privileged position where we felt, you know, we felt that we had, I guess, the resilience to draw on okay. to to operate at a time of like un unprecedented uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and I feel personally like I only got that through my defense forces experience and my military training. Um, I, do, I don't see where else I, I could have gotten that. Yeah. Um, and it meant then at times where, you know, a team wants you to lead or to navigate uh, or to guide, you know, others through. Yeah. Um, I found that, you know, veterans have been very much um, relied upon to, you know, bring people through that. Yeah. Um, and and to be those leaders and be those guides and I think that's something really special as well. Um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's something I'd love to see more people yeah. consider as a as a career option. Yeah, I'm pro- I'm probably like on the fence. I don't know if it's for everyone because I think like when I trained, I started at like a high number and I think like it was like high twenties passed mm-hmm. out kind of thing. So it's not for everyone. Um, Agree. Yeah. Mentally, you have to you have to want it. Um, yeah. More. Um, and you have to be physically robust and mentally robust. But yeah, I, we'll see what see what happens over the next few few years. I think the the defense forces nowadays in the military is like offering something. I think that's totally at odds with what like modern society is offering people. Yeah, like it's all about the self at the moment. Like yeah. it's it's the selfie. It's you know putting yourself first. It's like your needs, and I get that. Like there has to be a balance there. But what the army is offering you is something a little bit bigger than that. And it means actually you as an individual taking for a time just a little bit of a backseat and focusing more on on the group and the needs of the group um, yeah. or like, you know, maybe your national interests and your national needs. That's very, very different, I think, to to what's available out there now. Yeah. Um, and I think to to maybe for people to consider a career, like what what can we do to entice people in um for me it would be you know the sense of adventure the challenge um the opportunity to to work in these really incredible countries and and make a difference um and yeah doing something bigger than that than the self bigger than something you than you as an individual yeah it's definitely yeah we'll see what happens i suppose but yeah look it's definitely it's definitely a good career option if you if you want it so yeah I'll see it goes. But uh, I think that wraps it up. Amazing. Yeah.